Well, again, as we said just a moment ago, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and each and every week as I have the opportunity, or at least every couple of weeks, I will remind you of a New Testament verse that's there in your outline, and it comes from the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul says this. He says that the things that were written in former times were written for our instruction. That is, that the things that were written in the Old Testament are not just nice stories, they're not just quaint things to, you know, occupy our time as we read through, but they are stories that are placed there in order to communicate to you and I who live in the United States of America in 2007, 2,000 years after the Bible was completed. It's there to communicate God's message to us. And so one of the things that we've noticed as we've traveled through the book of Genesis and certainly the Old Testament, if your story is in the Bible, it's either really good or it's really bad. Have you noticed that? There's not like these mediocre stories. You're either doing something really great or you're doing something really dumb. And so we'll see how that works out today. But also there is another verse that I've, I've shared with the congregation here so many times before. It comes from Hosea. And God is speaking and he says, I've also spoken past tense to the prophets and I've multiplied visions and by the ministry of the prophets I've used similitudes. And so he, God says, you know, as, as we were penning the Bible. He says, sometimes I just spoke to the prophets and said, write this down. And there's certainly places where, where that happened. And, and then there are times where God gave a vision. And you'll see in, in Isaiah and you'll see in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there, there's these incredible visions that God gives. And sometimes he says, I, I've used similitudes. Now, that might be a new word to some, and certainly if you've been around for any length of time, you've heard me use that. But a similitude is just simply a word picture. And God says there are times in the Bible, as you read through, that, that it's not a vision, and I, and I didn't speak audibly, but this story is a similitude. That is, it's a word picture in order to communicate what I'm really trying to convey. And I'm, I'm taking what I want to convey, and I'm using a story to do that. Today, we're going to see one of those similitudes. Now, as we've been traveling through the book of Genesis, we've come to this man whose name is Abraham. Abraham is known in the New Testament as the father of faith. He's, he's the first believer, you might say. He's uh, the, just the guy that God begins to, to move through. And you'll, be, you'll recall that in chapter 12, Abraham, like us, began as a non-believer. God steps into his life and speaks to him and says, follow me. Abraham begins to follow, but he kind of does good. He kind of does not so good. He's growing in his faith. And then you'll recall that it was just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that for the past 25 years or so, Abraham has been following the Lord. God has blessed him in every way. God has blessed him. He's been growing in his faith. God has blessed him relationally. God has blessed him financially. God has blessed him materially. And, And it was just two weeks ago or three weeks ago as we were studying there in chapter 18, and only about two or three weeks before chapter 20, this, this event that we're going to look at today is just a couple of weeks after the events of chapter 18, God spoke to Abraham and once again says, I'm going to give you a son. And, and I'm, not only am I going to give you the son, and I've been promising you this for the past couple of decades, but next year you're actually going to, your wife is going to give birth to a son, and this is going to be the son that I've promised you. So, Abraham has the promises, God is blessing his life, he's living in the blessing, and and so things are really coming together for Abraham spiritually, materially, relationally, it's coming together. Now, does that make sense so far? So what does Abraham, the father of faith, living in the blessing, living with God's material blessing, spiritual blessing, you know, it's just a couple of weeks 
earlier in our story where God shows up and actually has a, a meal with Abraham. It's just this very wonderful thing. What does Abraham do? Well, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 20. And here's what it says. It says, now Abraham journeyed from there. You want to underline that? From there. Toward the land of the Negev. Now underline the Negev. And he settled between Kadesh, underline that, and Shur, underline that. And then he sojourned in Gerar. Sojourned in Gerar. Okay, well, there's a couple of things that I need to point out as, as we kind of unfold this. And, and one of the, the limitations is, is, for the most part, we don't, we don't read and write in Hebrew, and so we miss some of this. So a couple of things. I put verse 1 on your outline, and there on your outline it says, Now Abraham journeyed from there towards the land of Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned into Gerar. Now, it's interesting that the verse in this chapter just begins with saying that Abraham journeyed from there. Now, the question is, where is there? Well, there, the last there that we found Abraham was in chapter 18. In chapter 18, it just says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Mamre means fatness. It means abundance. It's the place where God had blessed Abraham materially. Uh, He's been blessed spiritually. You'll recall in chapter 18, at this place of Mamre, God shows up with two angels, or Jesus shows up with two angels. They have a meal together. God gives Abraham promises. Things are going well. And it's interesting, as all of this happens, and God says, next year you're going to have a child, it's interesting to me that it's at this point that Abraham moves from there, from the place of blessing. And and you have to ask yourself, Abraham, this is where God is blessing your life. This is where God is bringing it all together. This is where God has given you the promises. Why in the world would you move from there? Well, a couple of possibilities. It could be, you'll recall it was in chapter 19, uh, a very challenging chapter where God steps in and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And it could be that because Lot is rescued, and Lot's the only survivor, that word could get around the, the local communities, you might say, that, that it's the God of Abraham that did this, and uh, we're mad at Abraham because we had relatives in Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham could be afraid. That's one possibility. It could be that Abraham is just uncomfortable with being blessed by God. God begins to do something great in his life, and and sometimes we as believers become uncomfortable with God's blessing. We we see it all the time in our society. Somebody gets a mega million-dollar professional athlete deal, and you think, your life is set. And and now that their life is set, you you just can't help but notice that that now it's continuous drug abuse, and it's, it's DUIs, and it's broken relationships, and it's disaster, and it's disaster. And you go, what in the world's going on? And then you realize some people are just uncomfortable by being blessed. Does that make sense? So it could be that Abraham is just uncomfortable. Now, here, here's the bottom line is this. We just don't know why Abraham chose to move at this point. But here's what we do know. Abraham is the picture, the similitude of the believer whose life is being blessed. Life is coming together relationally. Life is coming together materially, financially. The mortgage is being paid. The wife, you know, the relationship is there. And the believer at some point, at some time, just kind of walks away from it all. And the rest of us look on and we go, what in the world 
are you thinking? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody who's just, God's blessing their life, and for some reason you just have no idea, they just kind of walk away from it all? That's where you say yes. Absolutely. And at Calvary Chapel over the past 10 years, we've seen so many people come in and God begins to bless their lives, places, you know, marriages come back together, financially doing great. And then at some point, somehow, some way, they just kind of walk away and you wonder what in the world is going on. Now, the good news is God has a way of always bringing them back. Well, a couple of things. It's interesting to me in verse 1 where Abraham and we go when we walk away from the place where God is blessing our lives. Uh, you'll notice that it says, toward the Negev. Verse 1, it says, Abraham's journeyed there toward the land of the Negev. Now, some of your Bibles would just say, from the Southland. So the idea is that Abraham's going south, and so he's going, from the Bible's perspective, he's going down. When you start going down in the Bible, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, well, let's see how, how it works out. So he starts heading down to the Negev. Then it says, of, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in, into, or, or he settled in Gerar. Now, a couple of things. First of all, he's between two places. He's between Kadesh and Shur. Again, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to you and I as we look at it in the English, but in the Hebrew, it paints a picture where Abraham is, not just physically, but spiritually. Abraham's kind of walked away from the place of blessing. He's heading down away from where God was moving in his life, and he's between two places. One place he's between is the place that's called Kadesh. There in your outline, Kadesh just simply means holiness or holy. And uh, so he's not really in the place where he's being holy. He's not really in the place of holiness. He's, he's kind of between that place and another place. And the other place that he is kind of in between is the place called Shur. Now, the word Shur in Hebrew just means enclosure or a wall. Uh, and most Bible um, dictionaries just translate it as a wall. Now, now here, here's, here's what I see in Abraham's life. And you tell me if I'm, if I'm stretching it. Abraham's kind of walked away from the place that God has for him. Right now, he's in between two places. He's in between the holy place, but he hasn't quite hit the wall yet. That make sense? Now, it's interesting. It tells us that he's in between these two places, in, in between the holy place, in between the wall, or hitting the wall. And it's interesting uh, where he's settling. He's, he's settling in this town of Gerar. So what's he doing? Well, it's interesting to me that the word Gerar in the Hebrew just means circle. And so, so here, here's what I see in Abraham's life. And uh, you, you tell me if I'm stretching it. Abraham's not really in the holy place anymore, hasn't quite hit the wall, but he's kind of going around in circles in between these two places. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, it's also interesting to me that Abraham, as he goes south, one of the things that you, you and I would miss, because we're not ancient Hebrews, but, but as it talks about going to Gerar, that a light would go off in our heads immediately if we lived in that time. Because you see, Gerar is none other than a Philistine town. Now, if you've been around the Bible for a long time or a short time, let me ask you a question. Philistines in the Bible, good thing, bad thing? Okay, now who, who, who's the famous Philistine? Goliath. Friends of Israel, not so friendly with Israel. Not so friendly. So, so it's interesting to me that we find Abraham. He's not really in the holy place anymore. Kind of left that. Hasn't quite hit the wall yet. Spiritually speaking, going around in circles. But now we see him kind of hanging out with the Philistines in this town of Gerar. Um, and and uh, so just knowing that, without even going any further, we've got a few more verses here in the chapter. Is this going to be a good story or a bad story? 
Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, he's left a place of abundance, not really in a holy place, not really hitting the wall, going around in circles. And so let's see what happens in verse 2. In verse 2, it says, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, underline this, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. The idea he's going to place her in his harem. Now, a couple of things. Abimelech is a name that's going to appear in other parts of the Bible. Abimelech is not the guy's name. It's his position. It's like Pharaoh or Caesar. It's kind of, this is the king. That's what they called him in this place. Abi means father. Melech means king. And so it's just my father, the king. And there's going to be several Abimelechs who, who would be king of this area. So we don't really know his name. We just know his position. That's kind of the family name. And uh, Abraham tells everybody that his wife is his sister. Now, is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Good. See, you're with me. Now, notice this. There in your outline, I've, I've placed sort of a paragraph, and you'll want to fill in a couple of blanks. Abraham isn't in a place that is holy, Kadesh, and hasn't yet hit a wall, that's sure, but finds himself going in circles, that's Gerar, among the wrong crowd, not being in the place that's holy anymore, leaving the place of abundance, but, but among the wrong crowd becomes fearful, write that down, and begins to compromise his integrity. And you see, for Abraham and for you and I, as we find ourselves no longer in the holy place, not yet hitting the wall, just kind of spiritually speaking, going around in circles, it's just the very next step, and it's the picture of the believer who walks away from the place of abundance, the place of blessing, heads out, hasn't quite hit the wall. One of the first things you notice is we begin to compromise our integrity without raising your hands or anything like that or saying, it's me, nothing like that. But, but have you kind of noticed that in your life and maybe in the lives of some of the people who kind of walk away from the faith? They get to that place and all of a sudden you notice they're compromising their integrity in key places. Have you noticed that? They're quiet. So here's what happens. God shows up, verse 3, and I love this, the first two, two words, and I've underlined it in my Bible, and it just says, but God. And uh, there's probably a sermon in just those two words, but, but God came to Abimelech in the dream of a night and said to him, now, so much is, is, is in how God says this, you know. Uh, God says, behold, you are a dead man. And uh, you got to kind of determine how it is that God says this. And I, I'm sort of guessing at this point that Abimelech doesn't wake up in the middle of the night and sees God, and God's going, "Behold, you're a dead man." I don't think that's the tone. I think it's sort of uh, um, how many of you watch the what is it, The Sopranos? Is that what they call that? And I sort of get the feeling that that Abimelech w- wakes up and he's got this guy up above, and he goes, "Now, behold, you are a dead man." And he kind of understands what's going on. So he says, but Abimelech, uh, that God came to Abimelech in the dream of the night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. You are a dead man. Because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech, Abimelech, underline this, had not come near to her. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation? Underline, will you slay a nation? Even though blameless, apparently he realizes this is something that's going to happen throughout the the entire nation. Did he not say, or did he, uh, verse 5, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. So here's the thing. Sarah's in on it too. Notice what he says. In my Bible it says, in the, what's the next word? Does your Bible say integrity? Integrity. 
Underline the word integrity. Underline the word integrity. He says, in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Lord, I I didn't know she was married. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the, what word does God use? Integrity. Underline that. Integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, couple of things as we, we go through this. One of the things that, that as you read this, sometimes we forget this, but how old is Sarah at this point? She's 90. Sarah's 90 at this point. And so um, you could, she's one hot mama. That's, that's what we're going to say. The, the Bible teaches that she's an incredibly beautiful woman. Uh, some suggest that, that, you know, God is rejuvenating her body uh, because she's about to, to give birth. Um, so we don't know. But, but it's interesting that God shows up and he tells this Abimelech, he says, you know, you've taken this woman and you are a dead man. Now, Abimelech is the king. And this king has a harem. And he has just brought Sarah into his harem. Now, ladies, you might find this shocking, but, but in that day, it was kind of the custom when a king took a woman into his harem, he was kind of with her that night. It's not like he said, okay, welcome to the harem. I'll get to you in a couple of months and, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll hook up whatever some, sometime down in the future. That's not typically how it worked. I guess that's somewhat of a surprise. But, but it would be typical that when that took place, that was kind of your night. And, and uh, he, he wasn't going to wait around for that. Does that make sense? Okay. That's important because uh, you just noticed something there in um, verse 3. It says, but God came to Abimelech in the dream of a night and says, you're a dead man because the woman whom you've taken, she is married. Now, Abimelech had not come near to her. Now, what does that tell you? Well, first of all, although it was the custom of the day that you would probably do that on the day that you took the woman into your harem, something's going on in Abimelech's life that he's not with a woman on this night. He's kind of alone, kind of in his bed where God comes to, to, to speak to him. Okay, does that picture make sense? It could be that Abimelech has been alone for some time because the word itself where God says you are dead can be translated dead in your desires. It could be that what's going on in Abimelech's life, God says, I'm the one who kept you from touching her. You had the plan, but right now you're noticing King Abimelech with your whole harem. You have no ability. It's not happening. It's not working. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, didn't have Viagra back then. So he's, he's, um, so he says, he's like, and he responds and he says, will you slay an entire nation? Now here's the idea. Apparently, Abimelech, it, it could be a couple of days, it could have been a couple of weeks. It probably wasn't a couple of months, but it could be just a couple of weeks possibly. And Abimelech, one night, you know, he's got this plan, and, you know, it's just, it, it's not happening. And the, the next day, he's there with his wise men. We don't know. But apparently, everybody in the kingdom is saying, you know, uh, you know, last night, it just, it was not happening. And uh, everybody says, yeah, I've been having the same trouble. And what about you? Well, it's been having, we just haven't been able to. And all of a sudden, Abimelech finds that the entire nation is having difficulty doing what they would normally do. Make sense? I didn't write it. 
And so, and so word is spreading around. And so Abimelech realizes if this word means dead in your desires, that everybody in the kingdom is dead in their desires. And so nobody can do what they normally do. And Abimelech says, you know, if we don't start doing what we typically do, it's going to kill the whole nation, basically. We're not going to survive the next generation. Okay, that makes sense. And then he says, so this is happening throughout the kingdom. Verse 5, he says, Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, I want you to write this down. Another shocking truth here today. Newsflash. Sometimes non-believers have more integrity than believers. Sometimes non-believers have more integrity than believers. If you've not been wounded by somebody who calls himself a believer, it's only because you've been saved about 10 minutes. And, and we, we look for believers, and, you know, one of the most frustrating things is to, to find somebody who sells you on the fact that they're a Christian, but they have no integrity, and you purchase something from them, you invite them to come in and do work in your home, and you find out they, they sold me on the whole God thing, but they have no integrity. And sometimes it's a sad reality about believers, and it's a sad reality about the world, is that sometimes non-believers have more integrity than believers. Would you agree in our story today that Abraham, the father of faith, has less integrity than Abimelech, the unbelieving king? Absolutely. So, now a couple of things I want to point out. We'll zoom through this. It's important for our study today. Uh, A couple of things that, that integrity does for us. First of all, you want to write this down. Integrity keeps me from sinning. Here, here's Abimelech, and, and God says, I'm, you, know, you operated in the integrity of your heart, and, and because you've done this, uh, I've also kept you from sinning. Notice that what it says on your outline from Proverbs. It says he's a shield to those who walk in integrity. It's interesting to me, Abimelech's not a believer, but he's walking in the integrity that he has, and God keeps him from making a terrible mistake. One other thing, and we'll see how this is important for our study today, but integrity profits my children. Notice what it says from Proverbs 20. It says, A righteous man who walks in his his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. And so we're going to see today at the end of our chapter how a man's lack of integrity greatly affects his family. But then also, number three there in your outline, integrity provides guidance. In Proverbs 11, it says, The integrity of the upright will guide them. Abimelech is not a believer, but he walks in his integrity. And because he walks in the integrity that he has, God shows up and gives him some guidance. Where is the guidance that God gives him? Verse 7. Notice verse 7, it says, Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a, what's that word? Underline that word prophet. He is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And so this is going to be the final generation if uh, you don't restore her. Now, I want you to write this down. Abraham, the Bible says, is a prophet. Write that down. 
This is the first time that the word prophet appears in the Bible. Anytime something appears in the Bible for the first time, it's typically significant. Abraham is a picture of what it means to be a prophet of God. God calls him a prophet. And I want you to notice that nowhere in Abraham's story does he ever foretell the future. Because that's not what a prophet typically does. Does God do that occasionally? Yes, he does. Now, there's a few things that we need to consider in this, in this verse. First of all, Abraham's just done this terrible thing. Ladies, I mean, your husband passes you off as your sister. You're dragged off to the, somebody else's harem. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Right, was that, we call that the big stupid. You don't do that. That's, you just don't do that. And so he's probably going to have a little marriage trouble after this. But, but he's, he's really made a really stupid decision. Can we agree on that? He's compromised his integrity. Um, but, but I want you to notice this verse. Here's what the Bible says. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And, and here, here's, here's what this means, that when God calls you to something, even though at times you blow it, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Abraham's blown it again. He's compromised his wife sexually. Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I need to save my skin. Who really cares what happens to you? They drag you off to the harem. You know, have a good life. I'll see you later. And then he kind of goes his way. Um, you know, he deceives the king. He blows his witness. Everybody's going to find out about this. And if there was ever a time when God would have probably wanted to look down in Abraham's life, and certainly if I was God, if I were to look down in Abraham's life and he did this, I would not have told this unbelieving king that this guy is a prophet who represents me. I would have left that off the table. Now, am I alone in this, or would you, would you have left that off the table? But it's interesting where Abraham does this terrible thing, it's where God comes along and says, no, he is a prophet. And, and God takes the opportunity once again to declare who Abraham is called to be and, and ultimately who he's going to be. Now, why is that so important? You and I, as modern-day believers, and certainly in the church that I grew up in, did, did, did you notice in this that, that Abraham's done something really stupid and God has this incredible opportunity to write Abraham off in such a way that we never hear from him again, but God doesn't write him off, but he takes the opportunity to declare to this king that Abraham is a prophet. Now, why is that so important? There are times when well-meaning believers are very quick to write off another believer for doing much less are going even nowhere near the extent that Abraham goes. We write off other believers, and yet we see that God does not write off this believer. We look at other believers and we say, you know, you went to that movie and it's rated what? Well, I, I don't know that I can ever look at you the same way again. Oh, you went to a restaurant and you had a glass of what? And, and, you, and I, I just don't know that I can ever look at you the same way again. I mean, how can you call your... I just, we, we just can't be in fellowship anymore. After all, you had a glass of that. You smoke? How in the... I, can, I, I just, there's just no way. I just can't. I mean, I can't look at you the same way. The conviction is strong on Ira today. So... <laughs> And we do that. We do that. And we're very, we're, no, he, he's okay. We, but we do that. And I hope. 
But we do that and, and we forget how far does God go and still say, no, he's a prophet. And we write off things, we write off people for things that the Bible doesn't even talk about because they don't match our standard. And yet this man passes his wife off as his sister. She's dragged off to a harem. He deceives the king, blows his testimony. And God says, he's a prophet. He's mine. He's mine. That makes sense? So the next time we decide to write somebody off, let's think about how far God goes with somebody before he writes them off. Make sense? Now that's the good news. If you've, if you've blown it today, just know that, that, that God still has you in his hands. But there's the bad news. Now here's the bad news. The Bible says there in your outline, it says, be sure your sin will find you out. And here, here's what we notice about Abraham. Abraham is a believer. And here's what I've, I've learned about being a believer and being a child of God and certainly having, having a, number of, a number of children. You know, with my kids, we just don't let them get away with it. And God has a way of stepping into the life of the believer when we think we're going to get away with something and we walk away and we think nobody's going to know. Because we're his kids, he has this incredible ability to step in and reveal what we've done and he just doesn't let us get away with it. Has that ever happened to you? You're really quiet today. And here's how it works. When you become a believer, it's like God takes his rubber band around you. And this is the rubber band relationship, you might say. And we begin to walk in harmony with him, and he begins to protect us with this rubber band that keeps us close to him. And we begin to walk, but then one day we begin to just stray a little bit. We stray a little bit, and we begin to feel that tension. We begin to feel the Holy Spirit begin to tug at our hearts. Because, you know, sin's no longer comfortable for us anymore. And God begins to bring us back. He brings us back. But sometimes we feel that tug and it doesn't really, you know, we just, we just don't come back as soon as we should and we begin to tug a little bit more and we tug a little bit more and we're stretching it and, you know, it's just miserable for us and we're still going. But, you know, God still has his rubber band relationship around us. And here's the reality. The further I pull away when I come back because he's not going to let me not come back, but the further I pull away when I come back, the harder the splat. That makes sense? And some of us have pulled here and God pulls us back and we come back, it's a little painful and we know the stories of those around us. We know they're believers, but they've walked away and they're pulling and, and it's miserable and God pulls them back and it's, and it's painful. And here, here's the point. The further I pull away, the more painful it's going to be when God brings me back. Glad to see God brought you back today, Ira. It's, it's a, <laughs> and does that make sense? And that's how it works in our relationship with God. He doesn't let us go. You're saved for all eternity, and you're his. And you go a certain distance, and he goes, okay, time to come back. And sometimes that can be very painful. Notice what it says there in your outline. It says, the way of the transgressor is hard. Make sense? Verses 8 through 10. It says, so Abimelech arose early in the morning. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and he called all his servants and told all the things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. And, you know, apparently this has been going on and they're all afraid. You know, yeah, it hasn't been happening with me either. Verse 9, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? 
you've done to me things that ought not to be done. So he's being uh, told off by a non-believer. You call yourself a believer. Verse 10, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered? Some of your Bibles will say, what have you seen? What have you seen in me that you did, that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, a couple of things. How embarrassing it must have been for Abraham on that day to be called on the carpet by this non-believing king. And then you also notice that Abraham is very much like modern-day believers. Abraham, in verses 11 and 12, it says, Abraham said, because I thought, surely, and you want to underline, because there's no fear of God in this place. I mean, you guys are non-believers. And, and, and because you're non-believers, he says, they will kill me because of my wife. And besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, for she became my wife. Now, here, here's what Abraham does. Abraham is very much like modern-day believers in this. Abraham looks out at non-believers, and he says, Abraham wrongly assumes that non-believers are evil, write that down, and untrustworthy because they are non-believers. And that's why we go out and we think, well, I've got to find a, a Christian mechanic, and I've got to find a Christian doctor and a Christian dentist, and all of these things because we think inherently that non-believers are somehow untrustworthy just because they are non-believers. Make sense? Here's the reality. You know, last week we shared in Genesis, or two weeks ago, we shared in Genesis chapter 19, and we talked about there would be a certain element in the last day, and we talked about the homosexual community and how God points that out in, in Genesis chapter 19. But the reality you know, most, most of the homosexual or people who are engaged in the homosexual lifestyle, they're not going to be militant. Now, will there be that faction? Absolutely. Most Muslims are not terrorists. And yet what we do is we believe because somebody is not a believer that they are automatically evil and untrustworthy. And because we draw that conclusion, we don't reach out to them. We simply build a wall between them. That makes sense? It's the same thing that Abraham does, and Abraham's operating in sin as he does this. So God appears to really care for this non-believing king and this non-believing kingdom. And so, but we, we tend to think, as Abraham does, because they're non-believers, they're going to have no fear of God, and they're going to kill him. That's what he's thinking. Now write this down. Abraham draws this conclusion from his thoughts, verse 11. He says, I thought from his thoughts and certainly not prayer. This is not the... This is not God's heart. It's not how God operates and certainly not how God calls believers to operate. Verse 12, besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, here's what's going on. Abraham marries Sarah. Abraham's dad has two wives. From another wife, he has Sarah, the daughter, and so she becomes the half-sister of Abraham. In that day, you know, they would do that. And so Abraham marries his half-sister. She becomes his wife. So this is a half-lie. But in God's economy, and you want to write this down, from God's perspective, a half-truth is a whole lie. And so Abraham uses this, but this is a lie that's told to people on the outside of the family, and it's only a half-lie. Make sense so far? That's where you say yes. 
Now, I also want you to notice one other thing about this, is that this sin that Abraham does, this sin begins with a plan. Write that down. Verse 13, it says, And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Now, here's the idea. Um, This has been the plan for the past 25 years, everywhere we go. And I told my wife this before we left my father's house. Wherever we go, just say that you're my sister. I realize that you're very beautiful, and I want to be safe, so you just say that. So it begins with a plan, and this plan is 25 years old. Now, one other interesting thing, uh, from the NIV version, it says it like this. You know, Abraham said, there in your outline, it says, and God, when God caused me to wander from my father's household, I said to her, underline this, especially ladies, how many of you are single here today? Okay, if you're a single lady here today, you need to underline this part, okay? You ready? When God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. Sound familiar? Now, here's what Abraham says. Abraham says of his wife, he says, Honey, if you really love me, here's what you'll need to do. If you really love me, I want you to compromise God's standard for our relationship. Any parallel? Make sense? Good. Okay. So, sin begins with a plan, turns into a pattern. Notice what it says. In verse 13, he says, It came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show me. Underline everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. Now, we know of two times that Abraham said this, it's recorded, but apparently everywhere they went, Sarah would say, I'm a sister. Now, here's, here's what uh, I want to show you today. I'm going to ask you to do something we don't typically do. Hold your place there, and I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Everybody there? With your pen in hand. I'm going to read verses 11 through 13. It says, And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and I may live on account of you. So honey, if you love me, here's what I want you to do. So this is a a time when he doesn't trust the Lord and he compromises. Now, next to verse 13, I want you to write Genesis chapter 20, verse 2. Genesis chapter 20, verse 2. Flip over to chapter 20. And in verse 2, it says, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So here we have a pattern. And in this pattern, it's a half lie, and it's to somebody outside the family. Does that make sense so far? 
next to verse 2, I want you to write Genesis chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. Now, and then I want you to write the next thing in your outline, ultimately, you know, sin is a pattern, but ultimately, my sin is passed on. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 26. Abraham will have a son. The son's name will be Isaac. Isaac will marry a beautiful woman named Rebekah. It was a pattern in Abraham, his father's life. Abraham was a believer. It was a half-lie. It was outside the family. In chapter 26, Abraham raises up a son who is also a believer, who also has a beautiful wife. And notice what it says. This will be some decades later, and it says, So Isaac lived in Gerar, and certainly that's where we are today, and and, uh, the town that Abraham's at. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my... Now, underline that. Now, why is that so important? Well, here's how it works. You have a pattern in Abraham, the believer's life, the father of faith, but he never deals with the sin in his life. And so it's a half lie, and it's outside the family, but it's the sin of dishonesty. So the next generation comes up, and the next generation has the same sin, but it's a little bit more. You see, whereas Abraham was married to his half-sister, Isaac is not married to his half-sister. So when Isaac's back is against the wall, he doesn't tell a half-lie. For him, it's a whole lie. Now, next to chapter 26 or somewhere on your outline, you want to write chapter 27. And I'm not going to go through it. You can look at it later. But here's what's going to happen. Abraham doesn't deal with it in his life. It's a half-lie. It's outside the family. The next generation is Isaac. He doesn't deal with it in his lifetime. So it's now a whole lie, but it's still outside the family. The next generation, it's now going to be a full lie, but it's going to be in the family. Isaac's going to have two sons, Jacob and Esau. They are going to deceive one another, and that the sin becomes just a little bit more in the next generation because it's a whole lie, but now it's in inside the family, but nobody deals with it in that generation. And so what happens in the next generation? Well, the next generation, Jacob raises up 12 sons. The 12 sons, and you might want to write Genesis chapter 37. You can read that later because nobody deals with the dishonesty in this generation or this generation or this generation. And in this generation, the first generation, it's a half lie and it's outside the family. The next generation, it's a whole lie and it's outside the family. The next generation, it's a whole lie and now it's within the family. But then the next generation, Jacob has 12 sons and 10 of the 12 sons take their brother, sell him as a slave, take his coat, kill an animal, douse it with blood, and then deceive their father into thinking that the son, Joseph, is now dead. Would you say that the deception grows a little bit in every generation? And it grows a little bit in every generation in a family that are all believers. They're all believers. And I wonder, I wonder if Abraham could have seen how this little half lie, three or four generations back, if he would have just stopped it right there, if it wouldn't have become a little bit bigger in the next generation, and if Isaac would have seen this one little thing in his generation, if he could have seen what it would look like in the next generation, if he would have dealt with it in his generation. Does that make sense? 
See, integrity protects my children because my lack of integrity is always passed on to the next generation. Make sense? Okay. Well, we pick it up and we wrap it up. Chapter uh, 20, verse 14. It says, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife, uh, Sarah, to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother, little Hebrew sarcasm there, a thousand pieces of silver. A thousand pieces of silver uh, represents a couple of million bucks. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all the men you are cleared. I'm sorry you didn't do this. It was your brother who did this. And uh, so here's a couple million bucks. Go shopping. Verse 17. Abraham prayed to God and healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. Here's the idea. Nobody was able to do that for some time. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, very quickly we wrap up. I just wonder today, and I know this, this has been one of those all-around-the-map type Bible studies, but I just wonder today if there's something in your life that seems somewhat insignificant, but if it shows up in the next generation and it's a little bit more and it's not dealt with this in this generation, and you pass it on to the next generation, I wonder if, if you would pray that God would give you a glimpse of what that's going to look like in the next generation. You see, right now today, if, if you're dabbling with something that's becoming an addiction, just know it's probably going to show up a little bit more in the next generation. If you're casual about your walk with the Lord, just know the kids that you bring up are going to be more casual. And the kids after that are going to have no care or consideration for God in any way, shape, or form. Whatever I'm doing in this generation, every one of us here today, is living the results of something that was passed on from a previous generation. But there's something that we need to break in our lives so that it's not passed on to that next generation. Does that make sense? So Jeff's going to come out and he's going to close us with song. And as he does, it's uh, we're... We're not going to have an, um, you know, come down front altar call or anything like that. But here's what I would say. After Jeff closes us with song, there's going to be prayer partners standing down in the front. And if today there's something in your life that the Holy Spirit's told you that this needs to end before it's passed on to the next generation, would you take today as an opportunity and deal with it, pray with somebody today, confess it, renounce it, and end it in your life today?